We're still in Matthew 5 after all these many weeks, and we'll go back there again today. <clears throat> we heard in the sermonette that some are tired of being pounded on. Well, that may be true. On the other hand, I'm tired of pounding. I'm tired of people not listening and ignoring what is being said and consigning it to just his opinion or whatever they want to say, but the ministry is commissioned to cry aloud and spare not. And if God's attitude is one of iron right now, then the ministry's attitude should be one of iron as well. Uh, and it is obvious, I think, from what we have seen in the Bible, that God's attitude right now is, I want you to change. And every scripture we go to screams that. So if I'm going to read the scriptures, I have to scream that, don't I? And if I don't, God is going to hold me accountable. I get tired of hearing it. I get tired of me saying it. I get tired of me not listening enough and not changing fast enough. So, <clears throat> if you're tired of being pounded upon, to me it shows that you are not meek and humble. To me it shows you are not willing to change. To me it shows you're just ready to swat the fly that keeps buzzing around your face. And you need to sharpen your ears and listen to what is actually being said and do something about it. Because as we also heard in the sermonette, God's promises are absolutely sure He will fulfill them. If He promises us that we will, He will turn to us when we turn to Him with our whole heart, He will. And if He also promises, which He does that if we do not change and get rid of our vanity and spiritual ego and become humble and change, that he will destroy us. And we've already seen via the church that that testimony is true. The church was bloated, egocentric, selfish, vain, and self-righteous, and he has basically destroyed it. So his promises are sure. If he promises bad, if we do bad, we're going to get bad. If we, he promises good, if we do good, then he will do good. You see, he adjusts what he is going to do based on our reaction. And if our reaction is not what it ought to be, then we're not going to get what we want. Just the way that it is. He is a parent who is going to be in charge one way or the other. He is not going to be a pal to his children. He's going to be a parent. He is not going to let the children run things. He is going to be a parent. He is not going to let the wife, the church, run things. He is going to be a husband. Now, he's already told us in Isaiah 3.12, the children are oppressors, and women rule over us. That's the way it is in Israel, this nation, today. And all too often, it is that way in our families, in the church, today. We're afraid our children will leave, so we give in to them, and we let them run things. It's sort of put, like putting the inmates in charge of the asylum. You've got to overcome your fear of your children's reactions and be a parent. A parent calls the shots and tells the children what to do. 
and the children had better do it or suffer the consequences. That's the way God's system works. Now, the Protestants will all tell you Christianity is easy. Again, in the sermonette, we were told today, narrow was the way, hard, difficult to enter into life. Broad is the way that goes to destruction. And that is very true. So the Protestants have it absolutely backward. Now, does this mean love goes away because we're going to be hard? No, it does not. How is Christ going to rule the earth when he is here? What has he told us about the millennium and how he will rule? It says in Isaiah 10, I think it's 10, no, well, maybe 11, I guess it is, that he will rule with a rod of iron. A rod of iron is how Christ will rule in the millennium. Now, it says he will gather his sheep in his arms and lead like a shepherd. You see, he's capable of doing both. Now, right now, the ministry can give you words of iron, but we cannot rule with a rod of iron. You still have options. You can either listen, learn, and do, or you can ignore and get tired of hearing it. I am not commissioned at this point to rule you with a rod of iron. I'm not going to come to your house and clean out your cupboards. I'm not going to make you manage your finances properly. I'm not going to make you keep the Sabbath. I'm not going to make you do this, that, or the other thing. You must choose. Now, when Christ returns to this earth, choice will be essentially over. The world will live God's way or else. That's just the way it is. He will rule with a rod of iron. Those who choose to obey will be blessed and treated gently and lovingly. Those who choose to disobey will receive extreme trouble. There won't be many of them because of what we're going through at the end of this age. The famine, the pestilence, the disease, the sword. People will be humbled, and then they'll be ready to listen. So you can either listen now and do something about it, and hopefully be counted worthy to escape all these things that are coming, or... You can get tired of being beat on and not change, and you can go into it and be beat on with famine, pestilence, and sword. It's all up to you. But I am going to proclaim, so long as God gives me breath, His Word, hopefully, as best I can, within the confines of His attitude toward the church right now. And His attitude is, I'm spewing you out of my mouth, your vomit to me, and you had better change, or you're going into tribulation. That's just the way that it is. Now, if you can't adjust to that kind of thinking, and it's too hard for you, I would suggest you go to United, or somewhere like that, where you'll hear smooth and easy things, and nobody's going to jerk your chain. You have choices. You do not have to come here and listen to Bill and Terry, and Nelson, and Gordon, and me, whoop on you. You don't have to do that. 
There are lots of places you can go. But if you do, I fear for you in that you will settle down and do nothing about it. Because you're not going to be urged, prompted, pushed to do what you need to do. Here I will promise you that you will receive as much push as we are capable of producing. And it will all be backed up by the Word of God. He believes in cause and effect. And this series of sermons is designed through Scripture to let us see what God's standard really is for us. Now, we've gone through the first 12 verses of Matthew 5, and we've seen an awful lot of attitude adjustment that God demands of us if we are to be His disciples. This chapter, this sermon, or this teaching session was given and aimed at his disciples. It was not aimed at the world in general. It was aimed at those who were going to become apostles and those who would be converted under their direction, guidance, and authority, including us today. So what we are reading here is addressed, in particular, by extension, to us. And these are the attitudes that we're dealing with. Matthew, I mean Revelation 2 and 3, talks about all the problems that would exist in the end-time church. And the overwhelming attitude that has to be dealt with by the majority is Laodiceanism, which includes vanity, ego, self-righteousness, and everything that is the opposite of spiritual humility, meekness, and love, true love. God even says... Very clearly, if you do not chasten your children, you hate them. It says it in so many words. It says if you love your children, you will chasten them betimes or frequently so that they will do that which is right. You see, children are carnal by nature. They're human and selfish by nature. And they have to be shown that there is a different way to live a way of living, of giving, of serving, of helping, and not selfishness. It doesn't come naturally. It doesn't with you and me. And God is chasing us very severely right now as converted adults, partially converted adults. Conversion means change, and we're not completely changed yet, so we're only partially converted. And our children haven't changed perhaps as much as we have, so they're far less changed or converted than we are. So they need help. And if you're a pal or a friend to your children, you're doing them a disservice, and they need to be made to toe the line, whether they be six months old or 17 years old. doesn't matter. They need to know who is in charge, and they need to know that it is not them. They do not make the decisions. If you're afraid of your children, you better go and learn to be afraid of God. He, he is truly the Father, and look what He's doing to you and me. Point that out to your children. You know, We're getting our punishment and chastening, so is it so strange that you should also get yours? We want you to be an upstanding, valuable citizen. Now, and in the millennium. 
We don't want you to be a washout, a jerk, a selfish individual going through life that way. Because people who are selfish do not have, ultimately, true friends, and they don't have loving relationships. So God's standard is given here. Now, he said, if you will do those things which are right and have the right attitudes, it led up to last week's sermon, which says that we will be persecuted, and if they persecuted Christ, they'll persecute us, and ultimately they will do their best to kill every last one of us. And only through God's protection will they be unable to. Now, you might find that depressing, but as we went through Deuteronomy last, uh, well, let's see, it was Thursday evening of Bible study, we saw there that all we have to do is have faith and trust in God, fear Him instead of our enemies, and He will deliver us. It's that simple. Where we're going, I think it was chapter 20 we were going through in Deuteronomy. And it shows very clearly that the priest was to tell them, don't fear, trust God when your enemies come against you. And then the commanders of the military were to stand up when the priests had done delivering that message and say, if you have a new wife that you haven't uh, consummated a marriage with, go home. Be with her. If you have a new vineyard, you haven't eaten the grapes, go home. Eat from your vineyard. If you built a new house you haven't lived in, go home. And then he made it even broader. He said, if any of you are afraid or scared to go into battle, go home. Lest your fearful, timid, cowardly attitude affect the rest of the army. He says, before you ever go to battle against your enemies, send everyone home, essentially, that will go home. And then, in great faith and trust in Almighty God, do it His way. Israel has seldom done that. And that is echoed in Haggai to us, in the end-time message, which is, in Haggai, is written only to us. He says, fear not, trust God, come build a temple and all will be well. But he has a standard. You know, there are some men who go through life never marrying. And it isn't the girl's fault that they're not married. It's their fault. It's their fault because in some cases they're looking for the perfect woman. Now, she does not exist. There is no perfect woman. So if you're going through life looking for her... You won't find her, so you won't ever get married. You're going to have to settle for less than perfect. On the other hand, so will she have to settle for less, because there isn't a perfect man either. Some women become old maids and dry up and die because they're looking for the perfect man. Most women, I think, are a little more optimistic, though. They will settle for less than perfect and figure they can fix it. Men have to find her perfect ready-made. Because they know they can't fix it. Now Christ, however, is looking for a perfect bride. And there's only one that is going to measure up. It is going to consist of 144,000 who have grown and overcome, changed, gotten rid of spots and wrinkles spiritually, and then who has absolutely, miraculously changed at the end so that everything 
but still is a weakness or a fault or a problem in her, will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye before the wedding. So he's working on getting us where we ought to be, and if we get as close as possible and he judges us worthy, then he will change us. He has that capacity. So this few chapters here is written to let us see what he is looking for and what he requires of us. Now, after saying, if you'll have the attitudes mentioned above through verses 3 through or through, through 9, then you will receive verses 10 through 12, which is persecution, hate from others who are not willing to follow this standard. So after then he says that, he begins to give some specific instruction and begins to enlarge upon his introduction. His introduction is verses 3 through 9, followed by the cause and effect of what will happen if you follow 3 through 9. And then, unless, just in case, we miss the point, which we did, he gives us the rest. And he gets more detailed in what he expects of us. Not just broad general principles of being humble or being poor in spirit, recognizing our lacks, and so on, and seeking righteousness. He shows us the standard of righteousness in specific examples. And listen carefully, because he also gives here his basis for judgment. He tells us in these next verses and chapters how he will judge us, what criteria he will use. So if you want to know how you're going to be judged by God, please tune in and listen carefully. I'll try not to yell too much if you've heard enough of that, but I will try to be very plain and very clear. Okay? I won't guarantee I won't raise my voice at some point, but I'll try to just lay it out here for you, okay? Got a deal? All right, let's move on. Verse 13, he's talking to a very limited audience here. Not to the multitude in general, because they would not be converted in that day, nor to the multitudes today, because they will not be converted in this day. He sat down and talked to his disciples of whom we are counted today. You and I are disciples of Christ. Learners, students of Christ. Okay? You are the salt of the earth. Salt is a very, very small part of a plate of food. You have meat and vegetables, bread, various things on your plate. Salt is a very small part of it. Now, let's say you have eight or ten ounces of meat and you have eight or ten ounces of salt and put them together, you're not going to eat it. That's too much salt. So what he's trying to explain here is that there isn't very much salt on earth. Because he likens his disciples as salt. So by sheer volume, there's going to be far less salt than there is meat and potatoes and beans and bread. Far less, not very much. doesn't take, you know, just a pinch of salt is sometimes plenty. That's all it takes. That's all that he has on this earth representing him today is just a pinch. Just a few. Fear not, little flock, he says. If you see something that is large today, 
in the Protestant or Christian world, or whatever world you might examine, then that's not of God. Can't be of God. He has a little flock. He does things in a small way to start with, and all there will be among the first fruits is 144,000 from Adam and Eve until Christ returns. That's all. Those are the first fruits. So out of 50 to 60 billion people, perhaps, 144,000 is just a pinch of salt. Not very many people. And you and I, sitting right here today, have opportunity to be a part of a pinch. This is our chance. This is our opportunity. Tremendous opportunity. Let's not take it lightly or take it for granted in any way, because here is your chance for eternal peace, happiness, security, love, partnership, right relationships forevermore. This is our chance at that. Even you young people, kids, even three and four and five and six years of age, already have relationship problems, don't they? Siblings argue, wrangle, fight with each other, are jealous of one another, fight, cousins fight get jealous, they get envious, they get hateful. You know, it starts early. Teenagers feel insecure, and so they go through their junior high and high school years trying to find security and relationships and friends that matter and count and will last and have difficulty doing so. It never changes, not in this life, not in this world. It's always difficult. It's always difficult to have friends, good friends, throughout life, because we tend to hurt one another, we tend to get selfish, we tend to use one another, on and on and on it goes. Compete, be jealous, be envious, that's just the human frame. You and I have an opportunity to rise above that, and literally rise at the return of Christ, and be above all that, be apart from all that and have right relationships forevermore. You young people have an opportunity, I believe, to go into the millennium and have good families, proper children, under better conditions than this world has to offer today. We're the salt of the earth. But there can be a problem. If the salt, if that tiny portion has lost its savor, it's lost its flavor, it's left, lost its potency. Then it's worthless. They throw it in the street. They used to make streets out of salt that was bad. Weeds wouldn't grow in it. It was just there. Bad salt. Salt that had no flavor, no strength to it. The salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? Well, in God's taste, the church had lost its savor today. And when something does not taste good in your mouth, you spit it out. That's what he said he would do with the church if it had a certain attitude. And now he has spit us out. We have to somehow find the flavor that he likes so that he will accept us again. 
put us back in his mouth, if you will, or turn his face to us, to use his analogy. Something tastes bad, you spit it out and turn your face from it. You don't even want to look at it. That is God's attitude toward the church as a whole right now. Now, I hope that if we do what we're supposed to be doing, he's beginning to look at us out of the corner of his eye and say, can I look at that? Do I dare? I hope with you and me he's getting to that point. And then he's going to feel confident and turn his face back to us and smile on us. That we have opportunity to achieve. We've lost our savor. It's not any good. It is henceforth good for nothing to be cast out and be trodden under foot of men. Now, you see, that's what God has offered us. He says, if you will look right and taste right to me, then I will accept you, hold you in my mouth, swallow you in that sense. You know, we use that expression. Was that too much for you to swallow? Is this too much for you to swallow? We have to be something that God would want to go down his throat with pleasure. That's what he's after. We're here to please God. And he uses the mouth as an analogy of his acceptance or unacceptance of us. So, if he will not protect us and keep us in his mouth, and in that sense be able to swallow us, what does he do? He spits us out. And he'll let men walk all over us. Now, is that not what is prophesied? That the times of the Gentiles are coming? That they will walk all over those who claim to be Christian and weren't in the tribulation? Persecuted and not protected. That's exactly what he says will happen. So we have to be salt, just the pinch, that pleases him, that has the right taste. Something doesn't have enough salt, I find a salt shaker. If something has too much salt, I say, ew, why did I do that? So we can be trodden under the foot of men, or we can be savored by God. Well, he says, you know, this is the standard. This is the way it is. This is the way it's going to be. I'll either accept you, or I'll tread you under, or let men tread you under. And then he makes it stronger, verse 14. You are the light of the world. Who is the light of the world? Only those who are converted, who are walking in the Spirit of God. That's the only light there is in this darkened world. The world tries to light up the earth. If you were to get in a satellite orbiting the earth, you would see great, bright light spots here. You'll be able to pick out, if you could see at night, and I have flown over places at night that I could recognize where they were because I knew basically where I was, where those Rio de Janeiro or Johannesburg or London or wherever. I knew what I was looking at. Flying down the coastline of Florida from Atlanta, I could see Miami. I could see Key West. I could see Havana. I could see uh, Caracas as I flew along at night and be able to know where it was based on the map by the little thing on the, on the plane of jump, on, in, the, in the plane on jumbo jets that show you about where you're flying along the coastline. I could tell what cities I was looking at. So if you were up there, you can look down 
and the world is trying to light this place up. And in fact, most places you fly along the earth, you're going to see light if there's land. There's ocean, it's dark. But we try electronically to light up our world. Las Vegas shines particularly brightly. There are nights right from where we live that you can see the glow of Las Vegas, probably 120 uh, miles as the crow flies from here. 160 by car, but less by a crow that can fly straight. They try to light that place up, and don't people come to that light? Oh boy, they come there by the plane load every day. Planes load. To enjoy, to find the excitement, the thrill of being in lost, lost wages. Old joke, but still true. But he says, we're the light of the world. The only light that God sees down here are his people. He can shut out the light of Las Vegas and New York and London because he hates it. He calls Jerusalem in the end time, Sodom and Egypt. And it's no worse than New York or Las Vegas or Los Angeles, is it? Sodom and Egypt. God hates Sodom, or hated it, destroyed it, and Egypt, and destroyed it. And he hates what he sees today that looks like it, and he's going to destroy it. So that light doesn't impress him. The only light that impresses him is what he sees in your mind and in your actions. It's the only light he sees that he likes. And that's the light of his word being carried out before him. So he says, we're here to light the world. They can't light themselves in a spiritual way that means anything. So it's our job. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. What he's going to do is set the church on a hill in Zion, and it's going to be a light that hate that the world hates. It'll shine in their eyes like a porch light when you're trying to look at the stars. He'll despise it, it'll frustrate him, or the world, but he's going to set it there. And the world will have to look at it. They can't ignore it. It'll be shining. Satan can see it, too. When he comes down, he's going to try to put that light out by chasing the church and killing everyone he can catch. Someone that goes back in their house for something will be left behind. It's going to be that critical, that serious. And then he can see the light shining, however dimly, and all of those who do not go to that place of safety, and he will try then to snuff out every one of those lights, so that the earth will be in total spiritual darkness, because this is not talking about electricity, this is talking about the Spirit of God. Satan doesn't want to see that shining anywhere. So if you're a light shining spiritually, you're going to be hated by Satan and by mankind. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a basket. I mean, what's the point? It should not be our attitude to go hide. It should be our attitude to let our light shine, not put it under a basket so that it cannot be seen. Now, that doesn't mean we ought to be full of pride and trying to show off, but we just need to not let our right hand know what our left hand is doing, do that which is right, 
And if the Spirit of God and its light shines through us, then that's a beautiful thing to God. And it shines in the eyes of man like a deer in headlights. They don't like it. Well, they put it on a candlestick, and it gives light to all that are in the house. The electric's going to go off one of these days, probably, and you're going to have to get a candle. Is that what you're going to do? Light a candle so you can see to get around the house, and then put a pan over it. No, you'll set it up high, or hold it up high, so you can see where you're going in the house. So God wants us to shine before the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Not your spiritual attitude of pride that you're the only ones that have preached the gospel in 1900 years and become so proud and obnoxious that God can't stand you. But to let your works shine. Let your deeds be what is shown, what is seen. And hopefully they'll glorify your Father in heaven, realizing that they aren't your works because you're just a fleshly human being, carnal by nature, fleshly by nature, wanting to go your way, and yet you overcome that and let the works of God shine forth so men can see it. And hopefully they'll attribute it to God, not you, because they know you as a human being are no different than they are. And see, that's the way we tend to make our judgments. Well, he's no different than I am. He puts his like, pants on one leg at a time. Well, true. True. We're all human. But we have to let the light of God shine. Because as human beings, we're all the same. None of us are any better than anyone else. None of us. You're not and I'm not. No better. No way. No how. The only thing that is different is if the Spirit of God works within us to make us different than others. So then God gets all the credit, not us. So why are we vain and spiritually superior in our thinking? That's why we're called a congregation of God, not the congregation of God. Because we're no better by nature than anyone else, and we're no better, period, unless the Spirit of God flows through us. The only thing that can improve us. Then he, cha- he tells us then that we have to be special in terms of being a pinch of salt so that this world has some flavor that's worth him tasting. And then we have to be a light that shines so that the glory of God might be seen by the things we do, the things we think. So that's pretty high standard, isn't it? The only thing on earth worth looking at needs to be you and me. God looks down. He hates what he sees. Now, isn't that what was true in Noah's day? Before he destroyed the earth, he couldn't stand what he saw, and he says, why did I make it? I think I'll wipe it all out. But he backed off because of Noah. And he's promised us in the end time a very similar promise. He says, unless Elijah comes and restores truth, and turns the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the children to the fathers, I will curse the earth with the curse. Wipe it out. So he is feeling emotionally 
the same today as he was in Noah's day about the earth. And the only thing that will keep him from wiping it out is if he sees enough salt to make it worth his taste, enough light of his presence here in us, that he can see it, and our hearts are changed to have right relationships with him, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and with our own children. Somebody has to tell us the way it has to be. Now he changes the subject. If you want to get specific about something else, verse 17 of Matthew 5. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. So then everybody thinks the next verse says that's exactly what he came for. Now, the first statement is, don't you think I am come to destroy the law or the prophets? I didn't come here to do that. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill them. He came to fulfill everything the prophets said would happen. He came to keep the law perfectly because no one else had. He didn't come here, as the Protestants will try to wash it away, by saying he came and fulfilled it, therefore we don't need to keep it. Baloney. I know a few people who have said, we have read James back there, which says, we have, now we have the royal law. The royal law is above the Ten Commandments, and now we don't have to keep the Ten Commandments. But if they just read the whole context of James, it says, which law? And then it starts naming the Ten Commandments. That's what the royal law is. God is royal. He's the king of all. And it is his law that is royal and important. Not done away with. Don't you think I came to destroy the law, they say. I came to destroy it. <laughs> he doesn't double talk. Now let's see what he says to explain that. For truly, verse 18, I say to you, is it truly now, listen. You know, people will say, now, to tell you honestly, which usually is preface for a lie, to be honest with you, haven't you heard people say that a lot of times? To be honest with you, then they'll lie to you. They wouldn't even say that if they weren't justifying in their own mind that they were about to tell a lie. Now, it isn't always the case, but it very frequently is. God isn't that way. When he says, I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets, that is, the words of the prophets. We've gone through the minor prophets. We've gone through Isaiah, Jeremiah, little bits of Ezekiel, Daniel. Those words are all there for today. He was telling his disciples, they're there for today. I didn't come to do away with those things. All the things that those prophets said are still viable. They're still alive. They weren't for ancient Israel. I mean, if all those things were for ancient Israel, why did he say, I didn't come to destroy the prophets? If they're for today, then he preserved them. That's what he was doing here, was preserving what the law, that is, the books of Moses and the prophets, had to say. I am here to preserve these things, not to do away with them, he said. So when we go through Deuteronomy, Bible study, 
those things are still here for today. They were written more for today than they were for ancient Israel. And some of the things that some of the prophets wrote were written after Israel had gone into captivity. So they had to be for today. People say, well, you're just dwelling in the Old Testament too much. <laughs> Christ validates the Old Testament right here. And Paul and James and John and Peter quoted from the Old Testament continually throughout the entire New Testament, validating them for New Testament doctrine. So the law and the prophets are still very much in effect. I didn't come to destroy them. I came to live by them, to fulfill them, to make them come alive. For truly I say to you, honestly and truly, I say to you, I'm not lying to you. I'm not man that will tell you I'm going to be true and honest and then lie. I tell the truth. Truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass, has that happened? Have the heavens and earth passed away? Well, if I walk out the door here, I still see earth. I look up at night, I see the heavens. They're still there, aren't they? So until heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Have all the prophecies of the Old Testament been fulfilled today? No. Daniel wrote things that cannot possibly be any time except the very end time. In fact, the Bible itself clearly says Daniel is sealed up, cannot be understood until the end time. If we are beginning to understand Daniel today, it obviously is the end time. There are parts of Daniel that have become very clear lately. There are parts that are still a little muddled, haven't come completely clear yet. Therefore, we're not done with the end time, we're still in it. So, nothing from the law has gone away. Now, change in application has occurred. I'll give you an example. Circumcision is perhaps one of the easiest to give because God instructed circumcision in the Old Testament for Israel and he made clear that that was forever. The circumcision was forever. And then Paul says very clearly in the book of Galatians, and it's in other places as well, the physical circumcision of the flesh means nothing and is nothing and does not need to be done today. Now, how do we reconcile that, and is that a contradiction? No, it is not. The application has simply been made spiritual. Now, this is inferred in a few places in the prophecies in the Old Testament. That God, and it's mentioned even in the Old Testament prophecies, not in the law, but in the prophecies, that God would require circumcision of the heart. And the prophecies were written for today. So the New Testament echoes that and says circumcision is of the heart. So circumcision has not been done away whatsoever. It simply means the change has to come in the mind, the psyche, the being not in the flesh. 
Sacrifices have not been done away at all. They have been changed. We do not need to do the blood of bulls and goats. It never did please him. The Scripture itself says in the Old Testament, and I believe it's echoed in Hebrews, is it not? Which is New Testament. The sacrifice of Christ is everything. And all those sacrifices, as we went through one Passover, have to do with Jesus Christ himself. Every one of them has to do with him. And if you believe in animal sacrifices today, then you are throwing dirt, or Christ's blood in the dirt, right back in his face. Because they mean nothing, the blood of bulls and goats never did. They were there as a shadow of things to come, as Paul clearly explains in the book of Hebrews. They were to point to Christ. And therefore, he became the sacrifice. Does that mean sacrifices are done in the way? No. He became a living and then a dead sacrifice. He is again living, and his sacrifice counts for you and me today. And we are told in Romans 12:1 that we are to become a living sacrifice walking daily and breathing as a sacrifice to our brethren in the church, in the world, and to God. Offered to God daily as a sweet-smelling sacrifice or sent to Him. And what we do and what we think are supposed to go up as a sweet savor. There was that kind of offering, wasn't there? That's what we're to be just as Christ was. Now, isn't he a sweet savor to us? When we consider that the law, when broken, brings death, and we would die without his sacrifice forevermore, eternally, not just physically, but eternally, then that is a sweet savor in our nose to realize he was willing God to die for us, to save us from ourselves and our sins. So, there's not one jot or tittle that is passed from the law, but there is a change in application. And when you go through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you have to apply it in principle. That's what Paul did many, many times in his Gospels. Apply it in principle to today. Not a literal physical fulfillment in many cases, but a spiritual fulfillment. doesn't spiritualize it away because the spiritual is more important than the physical. What is going to go away on this earth? The physical. We won't be physical anymore at some point. So the spiritual is far more important than the physical. So nothing of the law has passed away, and he's going to go on in this context and explain to us the spiritual application of some laws, of what he expects today as opposed to what he expected of ancient Israel. Now, they were expected to give physical sacrifices of animals. They were expected to have physical circumcision. They were expected to wear physical tassels on their clothes to remind them of the Holy Spirit and God's law. We are to be reminded spiritually by his Holy Spirit. It's the Comforter that was sent, the mind of God. All right, verse 19. Now one jot or one tittle will pass away, 
Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least by those in the kingdom of heaven, is implied. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's why we have the qualifications in Titus and Timothy for those who speak. They need to be living it first. Now, none of us have ever lived it perfectly. Only Christ has. But we have to, follow, we have to come to a minimum, in some respects, uh, way of living God's way before God allows it to be taught. You can't just raise yourself up and say, I think I'll teach. You must be very careful if you do that. But whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven, or by those in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter in the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were known in Israel for their righteousness. They were known for their keeping of the law, not just tithing, but counting every seed. So they were sure that every seed got tithed. Not nine shovels full in one, but each individual seed. Now there is, try, there is great carefulness on a physical level. But the spiritual level in their mind was not parallel to that. They were just doing it physically, but they weren't following through spiritually. So he said the Pharisees and Sadducees are not going to be in the kingdom of heaven. And you've got to be a whole lot better than them, or you won't either. So then he goes into some examples of that. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. All right, that's one of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? You shall not kill or do murder. Cannot do this. There was a time when they could kill human beings via execution, because of the law of, uh, what am I trying to say, the law of sin and death, or eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So there was the administration of physical death that was pronounced upon the nation to be carried out by the leaders and the families, and so on. You had a rebellious son, we'll get to it in Deuteronomy in due course here, but I, I read it in preparation for the Bible study the other night. If you have a rebellious son that will not obey, you're not supposed to fear him and give in to him. You're supposed to take him before the elders, and they were going to stone him to death. That way, the rest of the teenagers saw it and heard and feared and obeyed, lest they too get stoned. Children have a little bit different view of stone today. I realize that. It has nothing to do with rocks. It has to do with drugs with some teenagers and with some adults. But that's the way it was. 
Now, that hasn't passed away. It has been changed in form. Thankfully for me, I would have never reached the age I am today had that still been in effect when I was a teenager. I would have been rocked. Rock on, brother. Would have happened to me. Then the end of me. Because I was at times rebellious. I still am with God at times. I want to do what I want to do and think what I want to think. Thank you. That's a fight. All right. He says the law isn't going to be done away with, and then what does he begin to explain? He begins to explain the law in a different context than what Israel and the scribes and Pharisees had ever understood it up to that point. Had a different application. So he said, here's what you've heard in the past. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. What he's making there is a statement of fact and history as it had been done in the past. This is what you have heard. You disciples who are sitting here listening to me today, he said, this is what you were taught as children by the society, the culture, the scribes, the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel. This is what you've been taught. Now, what's he going to say about that? But I say to you, now, is he going to make it easier? It's going to be easier from now on? Are we going to be Protestant now? Law's done away. I say to you, you know, in times past, it was told you, you shall not kill. But I say to you, forget that. Now you can. But what are you going to say? I don't think so. What he's going to do is raise the bar higher. He's going to raise it to a higher standard. So he says, I say to you, verse 22, that whosoever is angry with his brother, and without a cause here, apparently is not in the original Greek, it may be implied, who is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, or vain, worthless person, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, you fool, and this is becoming greater in intensity. And in fact, the commentaries say that the Jews among themselves had three levels of intensity here in their culture about someone who considered someone uh, a fool without cause, or they were angry with them just because they were there or in their way. And then... There was, there was a certain level of guilt that was attached there, and then it got stronger. And Christ is echoing this. He says, anyone who passes judgment on his brother and calls him an utter worthless fool shall be in danger of Gehenna himself. So there are levels here of God's judgment. And... He's saying, then, that you don't have to kill anybody anymore to be in danger of Gehenna fire. All you have to do is make the judgment that that person himself should be in Gehenna fire, 
And you are bringing that upon yourself. In other words, he introduces this section of explanation of the law by saying that the worse attitude you have toward other people, the worse my attitude is going to be toward you. The stronger and stronger and stronger you judge others is how I will judge you. Stronger and stronger and stronger. So you don't have to physically kill someone now to be in jeopardy of censorship by others, by the church, by God himself, in terms of eternal life. But your attitude toward other people will affect how God judges you. So he begins to lay down, in terms of his judgment, how he will judge us. With increasing severity, depending on our attitudes toward others. The core, you could hate all you wanted, couldn't you? As long as you did not physically kill. <coughs> now he said you can't even hate. You can't despise. You cannot judge without coming unto judgment yourself. Now, to me, that's a much, much stronger, higher standard. Most of us have gone through this life so far, and we've been able to hop over the bar, if this is a high jump or a pole vault, we've been able to hop over the bar of not killing someone physically, haven't we, most of us? But how many of us have not hated, condemned, and despise others. Maybe we could have a show of hands of all those who have gone through life so far without doing that. I, I, I see none. We accomplished that early in life, didn't we? Didn't we despise, hate, and condemn someone almost by the time we got our diaper off? Maybe it's a little older than that. I don't know. This is a much, much higher standard that he is setting for us. You can't hate. You can't judge. And the deeper that judgment goes, the more severe, or the more severely, you will be judged. This is pretty tough medicine. The Protestant world looks upon Matthew 5, 6, and 7 as such a sweet thing. No, it's not. It's tougher than nails. Rod of iron, if you will. Nails, iron, steel. This is not an easy one. You think this is bad? Read on. Verse 23, Therefore, he says, having made this statement now, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, now the altar meant the place where you offer sacrifice to God in Old Testament. You brought a peace offering a sweet savor offering, a sin offering, whatever offering you had to bring before God, you took it to the altar. There it was sacrificed for you. It says, so if you bring your gift in the New Testament to God in prayer, you're asking for forgiveness for you. That's what the sin offering was, was an asking for forgiveness from God. And you were offering a bird or an animal or whatever that particular sacrifice required, that you be restored to the good graces of God and Israel. 
So now, we don't bring those animals, we bring the blood of Christ before the altar of God, don't we? He said, don't bring Christ's blood before my altar, except under certain circumstances. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave there your gift before the altar and go your way. Get off your knees, get out of your bedroom or your closet or wherever you're praying, and go and reconcile that or your, or your gift, your prayer, your asking of Christ's sacrifice to be shed in your behalf will not be recognized. Pure and simple. Before you, when you bring that gift, you remember your brother has something against you. Leave, therefore, your gift before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now, that's not just talking about physical brothers. That's talking about spiritual brothers, because the context here is of spiritual things. And Christ made it very clear when his mother and his brothers and sisters were waiting outside the building that his true brothers and his mother were in the building with him, and the physical ones did not count as much. So our spiritual brothers are more important in this context than our physical brothers who may not be converted, brothers, sisters, family, whatever. The spiritual brotherhood is what counts the most. So if there's a brother in the church or a sister that you know has something against you, you are to do your best to fix that, to reconcile it, to make it right before you are brought, before you bring your sacrifice whether it be a sacrifice of praise as a sweet savor or a sacrifice for sin through the blood of Jesus Christ before the Father. I had someone tell me just a few years ago, they were really upset at, mad at, angry with, had a grudge against another human being in the church. And the statement that came out of those human lips was, I cannot, I will not, Forgive and get rid of my grudge. Plain, outright statement. To me, that was truly frightening. But that hatred and that grudge was so deep that that individual would not even consider overcoming. And there's got to be some bitterness inside that kind of mind. Hate can go that deep. It is with Esau to this day against his brother Jacob. And God says Esau will conquer over Jacob at the end. That's why you have Edomites in positions of power and money in the fat places of the earth today who have a plan to destroy our nation, Jacob. And there is a conspiracy Dear Ethel, there really is. It is a conspiracy that's been there since Jacob and Esau walked physically on the face of the earth, and it has not gone away because that hatred is so deep. We're told in Deuteronomy we're not to despise Esau because he is our brother, so we're not to despise those so-called Jewish bankers 
who are conspiring to destroy our nation today. That is not to be our attitude. We're not to have hatred toward them. Hatred was Esau's deal. Not supposed to be ours. We're supposed to love, not hate. He hated, not love. So if there be any grudge, any hatred, any animosity, it has to be overcome. Now, how long do we have to overcome that? 20 years? 30 years? 40 years? 50 years? How long can you put it off? God said not to let the sun go down on our wrath. He gives you till sundown to get over it. All that's necessary is love, brethren. It's all we have to have. Well, in one sense, that's right. You have to love yourself, your brother, enough to get over your grudge, your hate, your animosity by sundown today. It's now 1.30 right here, Mountain Standard Time, and the sun goes down, getting around close to 8 o'clock. Doesn't give you a long time, does it? Six and a half hours, about. Whatever's in there, got to come out by sundown. How are you going to spend the afternoon? Is Christ giving us a higher standard here, or what? I'm not yelling, am I? Just laying it out. Just reading it to you. I haven't read that one yet, but it's there. Don't let it go down on your anger, the sun. In the Old Testament, as long as you didn't kill him, you could be stomping mad through your whole life, and you wouldn't be stomped. You could bear a grudge forevermore, and you weren't stoned. It was only when you lifted your hand and killed him that you suffered a penalty. Now he says, don't even come talk to me. Leave your gift on the altar and go and get it fixed. Then come and I'll hear you. We wonder sometimes, well, why doesn't God hear my prayers? Well, here's just one little reason. Because of animosity, hatred, grudge, feelings against someone that haven't been overcome. Now, it doesn't say you have to hate them either, does it? It says if they are angry at you. Don't come pray to me till you've tried to fix that. So, he puts the onus, onus upon us to go do something about it. If it's there. Not just in our mind, but in someone else's mind. So it isn't all to do with you, is it? If you're prone to narcissism, selfishness, and self-centeredness, it doesn't have to do just with you. It has to do with everyone else. So he lays their attitude and their problem partly on you to try to do something about it. So it isn't just self-control. It's for those who are not controlling themselves that you try to help them. Now that applies to a brother in the church. 
It could apply to your child as well. Maybe you don't have a bad attitude towards your kid, but your kid has a bad attitude toward you. <laughs> You're supposed to go fix it. That child's bad attitude is partly your problem. Now, the proverb said, even a child is known by the things that he does and thinks, right? Even the child. So, if it is even the child, it is more so the parent. The parent's old enough to know better. The parent's old enough to have learned self-control by now. The kid is not as culpable, is not as guilty as the parent when there are bad relationships. The parent is old enough to have learned better. The child is young enough that he might not yet have learned better. That's why we train children from the time they're very small to begin to control their attitudes, to begin to control their mind, to begin to control their world. Because if they don't, they might become old fools, not just young fools. If you intervene while they're young in life, they might learn self-control before they're old enough to destroy their lives through lack of self-control. That's our parental responsibility, to help them become upstanding, controlled citizens. Not controlled by our word, but controlled by their own mind and emotions properly. Because someday they're going to walk out of your house. Whether you like it or not, someday they will actually get up and walk out of your house. They won't be there anymore. Now, what have you done to prepare them for that? Are they an individual who can, can control their attitudes, their emotions, their feelings, their activities? Or do they still react selfishly, imprudently, and have a lack of control? Hopefully, by the time they walk out your door, they will have become mature enough because of your guidance and help that they can control themselves. Because if they can't, when they get out there, they're going to have a lot of problems in life. That's why God says, if you don't chasten them and straighten them out and help them learn to control themselves, you actually, in effect, hate them. Now, you may feel emotion of love toward them, but in effect, you hate them because you did not teach them self-control. Now, you might have been very controlling... But were you able to teach them to control themselves? That's what's important. Not if you can control them, because someday they're going to be out of your control totally when they walk out that door for good. Are you able to impart to them self-control? Will they go through their entire life blaming others for their problems? Will they go through their entire life unable to control their appetites for food, for sex, for entertainment, for highs emotionally, financially, or whatever. Will they have learned how to control themselves? Your job is to slowly have less and less control until they are in self-control. That's your job.
Will they whine and make excuses all their life? Or will they learn to be productive? Will when a boss says you need to do this, they whine and argue and stand up to the boss? How long are they going to keep the job? If they whine and stand up to you and argue with you, they haven't learned self-control yet, and they'll do it with someone else, and they'll get their butt canned. Let's be honest and frank here. So we have a responsibility with our children as well as with our brothers and sisters at large, or in general. Try to get it right. Try to get the relationship right. If you understand that self-control for your children is your goal, maybe you can impart to them, look, I'm not trying to control you. I'm trying to guide you and lead you so that you can control yourself. Now, it is not nearly as objectionable when you as a parent approach that child and say, look, this is about self-control in you. This is not about me controlling you. But if I have to control you for the moment, I'm doing it until I can slowly relax and trust you. But then when you do something that is not right and destroy that trust, I have to come back in with more control and man, I'm much less inclined to move my hands back and take the control away because you've already proved to me you won't control yourself. This is about us giving you hands up and heads up in the life that you were about to live as a human being by helping you learn to control your mind and attitudes in a right way. And it's not all about spirituality. It's just about getting along in this world in a right way where you will please employers and you will please a wife or a husband and a friend by being an upstanding, upright citizen. Now, if God chooses you and calls you, you'll have a leg up on being a Christian as well. But if he doesn't, at least on a physical level, you're going to be better off if you learn control of yourself and your attitude by the time you leave my house. Because once you leave, I can't do it for you anymore. It'll be up to you. What's it going to be? So if your brother or your child has something against you, you need to communicate. Figure out what it is. Because you owe them their self-control. They don't control themselves very well when they're born and when they're young. And your goal is to hold them in your arms when they're little and then at some point set them on the ground and let them walk. At some point, give them more and more opportunity. And lo and behold, you can move your arms, step back, and they'll be able to walk on their own. That's your goal as a parent. That's God's goal with us as our parents. It's the church's goal as part of the parent representing the mother. Back up and let you walk before God your Father in uprightness and total self-control. That's the goal of Jesus Christ. That's the goal of the church. Not to have to control you, but so that you have learned to control yourself. 
That's what Christ was trying to teach these disciples. He set a very high standard, much higher than Moses had set. He didn't come to get rid of the law. He came to make it far more binding than it ever had been before. He's beginning to get into the thought process here, isn't he? Absolute mind control. You controlling your mind to bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ. That's our goal as Christians. To not think any thought he wouldn't think. How many thoughts do you think every day that Christ did not allow himself to think and does not to this day? The Father and the Son have absolute, total control of their thought processes. Never does a wrong thought cross their minds. Nor, if it did, would they coddle it and enjoy it. It isn't allowed. They do not allow it. So they're not asking us to do anything they don't do. They're just asking us as human beings to do it so that we might mature to the point we can be like them. That's why it's so important that we as physical parents be an example to our children. You know, if you're rebellious against your mother of the church and your father in heaven and his instructions, then why do you expect them not to resent and be against you as a physical parent? Now, come on. Do we have a double standard here? You must do everything I say, but I don't have to do everything God says. You think they don't see the hypocrisy in us sometimes? Of course they do. Of course they do. Do we need to apologize to them sometimes? Yes, we do. Sincerely and honestly saying, look, I know you're not living up to it, and I'm having a struggle myself. I'm trying to be what I ought to be. You try to be what you ought to be. I know how happy we shall be. It would all live up to it. Through God, we can get along. Times are getting to be. Let's don't... Well, let's see. Let's finish this thought because it carries on down into verse 25. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are in the way or in the street or the avenue or wherever you are with him. Lest at any time the adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge deliver you to the officer and you be cast into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall by no means come out till you have paid the uttermost farthing. Now in England, in times past, before we came here as pilgrims into America, if you had debt that you owed someone, they would throw you in jail and you couldn't get out of jail till you paid it. Kind of a catch-22, really. How are you going to pay when you can't work? You're in jail, you can't make money and pay it, so you're there forever. Can't get out till you pay. Your only hope is that someone else will see you and have pity and pay your debt for you, and you could get out or bring you money so that you could pay it. Then the guard would probably steal it from you and you wouldn't get it paid anyway. So you're there. Well, God says, if you have something against your brother, 
you get it fixed, and you get it fixed right away. Otherwise, I'm not going to hear your prayers. There's no sense in bringing it before my altar unless you're planning on doing something about it. And another place he says, don't let the sun go down on it. Get it done. Don't fool around. Get it done. And if you have an adversary or an enemy or somebody that hates you, do all you can to get it settled out there in the street. Don't bring it into the altar, is the implication and the context as it flows here. In other words, there is penalty for not getting something settled. Whether it be in a physical court of law, whether they throw you in the jail until you pay, or if you come before God and you have a spiritual prison you've built for yourself and you can't get out of it until you solve the problem. Sometimes it's impossible. Sometimes, like Esau, there simply is no repentance, even though Esau sought it carefully and with tears. He wished he could change his attitude, but he could not get it changed. So, you might try. You might do your level best, and you might not be able to change someone else's attitude. But at least you've done your best to try to change it. That's what we're obligated to do. If they do not then change their attitude, at least you have clear passage to go to God and leave your gift before the altar and ask forgiveness for your own sin. But that's what He expects of us. If we're not willing to do that, we're not coming out of the spiritual cage we're building around ourselves until we pay our debt. God is setting a very, very high standard here. And Christ starts out in Matthew 5. And this just gets sweeter and sweeter the further we go in this context, I'll guarantee you. It gets tougher and tougher. It doesn't get easier from here. So far, He's only talked about killing and hating. It will get more difficult as we go. That's enough, though, for one day.